Hey listeners, I'm Jacob. And I'm Tori. And you're listening to Nothing New Here. This is the show where we explore current trends in politics and the economy and show that we've all seen this before. And this week, we're diving into a particularly hot topic, artificial intelligence. That's right. With all the hype around AI like ChatGPT, we thought we'd take a step back and look at other innovations in history and ask, is AI something entirely new or is it just another step in the long arc of technology? Welcome to Nothing New Here. Tori, I'm looking at this article. It's called Machines of Mind, the case for an AI power productivity boom. Just a little light reading. Just a little light reading. It was published by these three economists, Martin Neil Bailey, Eric Brynjolfsson, and Anton Kornick. And it's this really interesting article. Uh, it starts with this opening uh, paragraph that I think will be familiar to a lot of us. So it says, quote, on a recent Friday morning, one of us sat down in his favorite coffee shop to work on a new research paper regarding how AI will affect the labor market. To begin, he pulled up ChatGPT, a generative AI tool. After entering a few plain English prompts, the system was able to provide a suitable economic model, draft code to run the model, and produce potential titles for the work. By the end of the morning, he had achieved a week's worth of progress on his research. They then followed this with, quote, We expect millions of knowledge workers ranging from doctors and lawyers to managers and salespeople to experience similar groundbreaking shifts in their productivity within a few years, if not sooner. So then it kind of launches into the main argument of the paper. AI is going to produce a huge productivity boom for the United States. And that's really important because when you think about what productivity growth really is, is in a way it kind of captures rising standards of living. Of course, there are other elements of that. You know, how are those gains being distributed across society? What kind of social services are there available to the public? But in general, you know, if productivity is going up, you can produce more for the same level of input. You know, society is better off as a whole. And just to stop you there, when you say productivity, are we talking about for one group of workers, many workers? Yeah. So they're talking about aggregate productivity in the United States. So it's not just salespeople, not just lawyers. If we were to look at general productivity in the United States across all different sectors, we're talking about a really big productivity boom. So in the argument they kind of lay out, there are two important channels to think about when we're thinking about this productivity growth. So the first one is kind of the obvious. Anyone who's used ChatGPT has seen, it makes you a lot more productive at certain things. So yes, you can write an email faster. You can produce an image a lot faster with Dolly. That's probably going to be a really big thing for graphic designers. I can draft this memo faster, right? I can write code faster. But the second channel for productivity growth is much more exciting. And that's it's going to create all these new types of things for us, right? Um, you know, it's going to help us find cures to cancer. Mm. It can maybe help us find superconductors. Maybe we'll find solutions to cold fusion. And even beyond just like, you know, new innovations, new drugs, things like that. I mean, maybe it's going to change the way a lot of our business processes work today. So their second argument is that we're going to see a lot of productivity growth because AI enables us to do things we currently can't do. Okay. So to summarize what you just said, on one level, AI is going to improve all the things that we're already doing today, but then there's this whole other realm of net new things that we don't even know what it's going to do, but we have some hypotheses around like how it's going to improve that. And you're saying it's going to increase productivity, but when we say increase productivity, what are we really talking about here? Yeah, no, it's definitely not like an arbitrary increase. I've seen one of the authors, Eric Brynjolfsson, say he expects to see a doubling of productivity growth in the coming decade due to these technologies. Wow. Okay. And, and doubling productivity growth is no small feat. I mean, we're going to get into this a little bit with the other technologies and innovations from the past, but often you don't see a lot of productivity growth 
necessarily right away when it gets developed. And then even later on, I mean, there's even debates today how much productivity growth information technology companies are even really driving. Um, so for these writers to be saying that this is going to lead to a doubling of productivity growth from the super nascent technology, I think that's something to be excited about potentially. Definitely. And one of the things you're hearing a lot about in the news, of course, is you know rising debt, constant deficits year after year. One of the arguments in this paper is those problems that we're talking about a lot seem to be a lot smaller if we're looking at doubling of productivity growth over the coming decade. Okay, so to get into what the entire idea behind this podcast is, is this productivity growth we're seeing, or not seeing yet, but predicting from AI, has this happened before with other types of technologies and innovations? And when we were developing this, I think the one clear one that stood out that people most often talked about is the advent of the steam engine. Want to kick us off? Picture yourself, it's the 1600s. Mm. It's a cold, cold, bleak day. I can picture it. On the English countryside. And of course, it's raining because it's England. And you're mining for coal. And you're digging deeper and you're digging deeper and you keep running into this issue over and over and over again. Do you know what that is? Um, dead bodies? No, no. It's actually water. Lots and lots of groundwater. But the further you dig, the more groundwater you hit. And this is obviously a humongous problem. And you can't, well, there's really no easy way to divert this water away. And obviously you can't drink it. So enter stage right innovator Thomas Savory, who proposes this brilliant idea. He comes up with a way to use steam to actually um, create a vacuum in a tank and suck the water up out of the mine shaft. What he calls effectively raising water by fire. And it's not long before people start to understand that he's developed something really novel here. And it's the first time that um, we see humans using a steam engine in the modern day sense as a particular power generator to move water up out of these mine shafts. Why have I never heard of this guy before? Well, the reason is that another guy comes along named Thomas Newcomen, and he designs an even better one. And this one actually has a piston. Um, but it doesn't even stop with Thomas Newcomen. Then it moves on to famous Scottish inventor James Watt. And he teams up with British manufacturer Matthew Bolton, and they create a brand new steam engine. Beyond just moving water up out of mines, Watt and Bolton make significant improvements, perhaps most critically designing an engine that can rotate a shaft. So it doesn't just move up and down. You can actually move things right to left, left to right, over and over and over again. And this is where we start to see turning steam engine into mechanical motion. So what's the aftermath of all of this? I mean, where did this lead us? Well, you can sort of guess where it heads, right? I mean, it starts off, obviously, with this very niche use case. It expands out to factories. And what it effectively ends up doing is fueling the entire industrial revolution. The steam engine continues to make improvements on the same design. And all of a sudden, we have what we traditionally think of the industrial revolution as humongous railways, huge factories, and the ability to build things that um, aren't just near running water or rivers like you had to do before where they would actually power the factory. Now you can build them anywhere and you have entire towns building up around factories, which is really new in history. So this kind of allowed for urbanization is the idea. Exactly. And this really leads to an explosion of new types of invention and innovation. So I already named trains, but there's also steamboats. So you can imagine for the first time you can take a boat across huge distances of ocean, all powered by steam. And then perhaps more importantly, and this is where I think people probably don't realize how much steam even plays a role in our lives today, is that you can actually use steam power to generate power generators, which then leads to the advent of electricity. 
And I was even surprised when I was looking this up today, coal plants, nuclear plants, thermal energy plants, they all rely on steam turbines to generate that electricity. And according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, steam turbines actually account for 42% of the electricity generation in the U.S. in 2022. So 42% of the electricity generated in 2022 came from this technology that came out in the 18th century. Exactly. And the principles of it pretty much still apply. All right. So that's a steam engine. But I know you also want to talk about another technology that had a transformative impact on society. And that's a technology a lot of us are much, much more familiar with because it's one that we knowingly interact with every day. So in terms of innovation, when we talk about steam engine, steam power, in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is using steam to what effectively is either augment or replace physical motion, right? So, you know, cranking a wheel or operating a machine, right? Things that humans have always done that we then can use steam power to do. But this other innovation that I want to talk about is more along the lines of mental capacity that we expanded. Okay. And that's the internet, right? The internet that we all love and enjoy today. I've heard of it. <laughs> and what's funny about the internet is, you know, it's been sort of hypothesized for a long time. Um, Nikola Tesla, ever heard of him? Uh, I think I have. Yeah, he drives a really fancy car that I can't afford. Right, right. Um, is said to have hypothesized about a world wireless system as early as their um, early 1900s. Okay, let me just stop you there. I cannot stand it when people are like, they predicted xyz thing and you're like that was the broadest idea ever a worldwide what is it a world wireless system yeah but to be fair no one else was really thinking about something like that someone else definitely thought of it and just wasn't nikola tesla well they just probably didn't write it down so there's also that to consider but either way i mean it's pretty a wacky idea we could i feel like we could do an entire episode just on his thinking around this thing yes but but i refuse to give him credit well that's fair but what starts off as this hypothetical idea really begins to take shape in the 1960s when pioneers start to make advancements in this technology called packet switching, which is just effectively a method of transporting or transmitting electronic data. And and that wasn't like Silicon Valley bros doing this at this point, right? This was a government-funded project? Well, and that's the thing. It's funny, when we think about the internet, and especially what is effectively big tech today, Google, Facebook, um, Microsoft, etc. We think about the classic story, two people in a garage inventing something new that is going to eventually make them billionaires. But a lot of the early advancements that happened in the internet was actually through the U.S. Department of Defense, specifically the Advanced Research Projects Agency network. And one of the first tests that they did here, when we think about the internet anyway, is they had two computers and they were humongous, the size of small houses. And one was placed in UCLA and one was placed in Stanford and they tried to transmit the word login between the two. But unfortunately, the entire thing crashed before it could even transmit the entire word and only some of the letters were able to be transmitted. Okay, so I'm with you. Two different computers transmitting the word login, it crashes. How are we getting to anything resembling the modern internet where people can go and buy shoes and post things to social media and stream videos? I mean, how are we getting anywhere close to what we currently have? Like the steam engine situation, it's a matter of time. Things build on each other. People continue to improve things. And slowly what starts happening is that all these computer scientists are assembling more and more of these networks, right? And they're laying the foundation for what eventually will become the internet. And When we think of the internet, I think a lot of us think about, you know, the way that we browse Google Chrome. And that was actually invented by a computer scientist named Tim Berners-Lee. And 
that's really what he invents is the World Wide Web. And it's not the same as the internet. You can really think of the World Wide Web being enabled via the internet. The internet's the entire network of all the computers on which the web, email, apps that exist today all run on. I can't tell you how many people have tried to explain this distinction to me, and I still don't get it. Yeah, I mean, just take my word for it. They're not the same thing, and the web is what sits on top of the internet. So, obviously... This is a huge advancement, and this invention of the internet creates an absolute bonanza. Think about everything that's happening in your life. You send an email at work. You watch a video while you eat lunch. You opened Instagram a thousand times a day on your phone, and you didn't understand how steam power works, so you searched it on Google, like I did for this episode. Think about all the companies that fuel all those things today. So Google, Facebook. I mean, these are just some of the biggest ones, right? And they're humongous wealth generators. Okay, so it's created all this wealth, but what new types of things do we start to see with it? I mean, the internet and just itself isn't particularly valuable or useful or consumer friendly, right? It's what gets built and enabled through it. So email, the app store, web pages, e-commerce. I mean, e-commerce alone is humongous, right? I mean, we get everything delivered these days. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the steam engine and the internet and you consider all the research that you did around artificial intelligence... Where do you see the similarities or differences? So the big similarity I see is that these three technologies, so AI, the steam engine, and the, uh, the internet, are arguably something that we call general purpose technologies. So a general purpose technology kind of stands apart from just your, your everyday technology for three key features. So the first feature is ubiquity, right? It needs to be widespread. It needs to be used across the economy. It can't just be like miners are using it and that's it. The second thing is that they need to be able to be improved upon over time. It can't be the final thing. The steam engine you talked about, it kept getting better and better and better. And AI definitely looks like it has that ability. I mean, it's gotten a lot better over time. As we talked about, AI isn't entirely new. It's just a lot better than it was. And then the third part of a general purpose technology is that they have to be able to give rise to other innovations. The steam engine was not the final product. The internet was not the final product. The internet gave rise to all of these new different things like e-commerce, like social media, uh, you name it. So that's kind of the similarity I see between these. So I think it's obvious at this point, there's a lot of similarities between these three technologies. What in your mind is the differentiator between steam engine, internet, and this new thing that we are all excited about called artificial intelligence? One difference to me, it feels like AI is more oriented towards, as the name would imply, mimicking humans. The ultimate goal for this is, can you produce AGI, artificial general intelligence? So basically, can you create an AI that is as smart as a human? One thing that feels a little different about this is that it does feel like where this is headed, or at least where the research focus is, is more in the realm of, can we fully automate a lot of the things that humans do? Has anyone ever thought about this? And I kind of find this interesting. Say you get to a point with AGI where it is smarter than a human. I mean, okay, outside the bear case that everyone talks about where we just become extinct because whatever AGI decides that we're bad for the environment or something. Has there anybody thought about like what would it mean for humankind? Like, could we all just sit and relax and just enjoy the fruits of our invention and not have to work and not have to do anything that, you know, in society? I think everyone has a different idea of what the world would look like if we had AGI. I think if you were to ask someone at OpenAI or, you know, any of these other companies that are trying to develop it, their argument would be like, even if you get to AGI, that doesn't mean no jobs, right? That doesn't mean no one is working anymore. 
you know, there are certain types of jobs where people will prefer to interact with people rather than AI or robots. Uh, you know, I could see a world in which you still had entrepreneurs and you had a bunch of people like pursuing ideas and they just had infinite intelligence at their disposal to make it happen. So I think that it doesn't mean that literally no one's going to be working anymore. I think that what a lot of these researchers kind of envision is, yes, we're going to be living in a world of abundance. Prices are so low. People can buy things very cheaply and everything is kind of at your beck and call at all times. Well, and if the steam engine, the internet is a template to go off of, there's going to be tons of more innovations and jobs and new productivity growth that we see that just fuels way more inventions, as you're saying. It's hard to imagine a situation where this doesn't just lead to a lot more innovation, new jobs, new things to do. All right. So to tally this up, AI is probably going to change the way we work. You're going to be able to see it in a lot of areas of the economy. Hopefully it's going to lead to a lot of new technologies and innovations. Mm-hmm. Did the steam engine do that? Yeah. The internet also did it. Right. But there is something new here. I mean, as we talked about it, the ultimate goal for AI is creating this ultimate being that is at least as good as a human on most economically valuable tasks out there. So it kind of leads to the question, what kind of work will there be left for us to do? And I think that's definitely the unanswered question that we're not going to answer on this podcast today. Right. I think we can both admit that that would be pretty new. Yeah, definitely. But if we do want to end on one positive note, that economist we talked about in the beginning, Eric Brynjolfsson, said, if we play our cards right, we may be looking at one of the best decades in human history. 